Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit templebiblechurch.org. I'm going to introduce my friend to you all today. Uh, This is Karen Smith. I want you to know that her husband Shane is on our elder board right now. Karen and Shane are a couple that you all need to know. And I'm excited that um, that God has put something on Karen's heart to share with us today on Joshua 1. And so I'm looking forward to our time together. So let's let's bow in prayer. And I'm going to pray for Karen and pray for all of us. Father God, we just thank you for bringing us together today. We thank you uh, for the discussion that we just shared around your word. And God, we're thankful that you have um, spoken to and taught Karen as she has prepared Um, these weeks. And God, we look forward to what you will teach us through her. God, would you just help us to put away the cares of today, to focus our attention. um, And we just trust you, Father, that you're going to reveal something uh, to us in your word that you intend for us to put into practice. So would you give Karen wisdom and give her discernment as she she shares what you put on her heart. We love you, Father, and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Can y'all hear me okay? Okay, so a couple things I wanted to say before I get really started is um, there's two tools that I love for studying the Bible. One of them is called the Blue Letter Bible app. Um, It's an app on your phone that you can put on, but it's also, if you don't, if you're not that techie, you can go to the website called the Blue Letter Bible. It's a great tool though, but what I really love about it is the ability, you can look then through it at uh, the Hebrew words and some of the Greek words, if it's in the New Testament. But it's a really great tool. If you can't figure it out, come find me. I'd be happy to show you what that looks like, but it's a really great tool. The second one is um, on your table, you should have a sheet that looks like this that says the tools for studying the Bible. Um, this has changed my life, honestly. Um, there is a book uh, over here on the recommended resources on the bottom right called Living by the Book by Howard Hendricks. He's a professor at DTS, but um, he, that book is so excellent in teaching how to study the word and how to dig in deeper. What's great about this sheet is it's more or less like your cliff notes of the book. It's like everything the book says condensed into one little sheet. Um, It's just a really, really great tool of how to study. I often keep this in my Bible um, just to remind me of things to ask as I'm going through the text. And so if you've uh, done studies with us before, there's a good chance you've seen this. So if you have one, use that one. If you don't have one, please take one off of the table. So, um, this morning, a little bit about myself. We'll see if I can get this to work. No. There we go. So, this is my family. Uh, I've been married to Shane for 18 years now. We have uh, three kids Bella in the AM hat, she's 13, Gunner is 11, and Callie in the front is nine. Um, I was looking for the most recent family picture and found this one. The girl in the stripes is actually not my daughter. Um, Her name is Maggie, and we went to a family camp this summer, and she was our counselor, but this was the most recent picture we had. But I actually love that. We often have people in our home living with us that are not a part of our family of five. Um, 
Yeah, my dad living with us for a while, for three years, until we've recently moved him into assisted living. We've had numerous college kids live with us uh, at different times in our life, and we love opening up our home into that. And so, though Maggie has not lived with us, I thought it was appropriate to show you a family picture with somebody else in it. Um, So that's my family. So, a little bit about my life. It's actually been a rough couple of weeks for me. In July, I went in for a routine mammogram. Um, It came back abnormal, uh, which I know is common. So I go back for the next one. It was also abnormal. That led to an appointment with a surgeon to get that spot looked at. And so then, the day of surgery came and I was wearing my fight shirt, that's what I call it. Um, So surgery comes to take this mass out to determine if it's cancer or not. And so from the first mammogram to the day that I got the results was 40 days in between. Um, Felt like a really, really long time to wait. 40 days of reminding myself of who God was, of clinging to his word, 40 days of worship, music being on, and honestly just fighting fear in my own life. The thing that gave me the deepest peace through that time was looking back at what God had done in my life, where he had been there for me before, helped me to have the faith that he would be there through me, with me, whatever he was calling me to um, in the future that he has never left me, and so context was the key. I needed to remember what God had done so I could trust in his faithfulness tomorrow. So before we dig into Joshua today, I want to remind you that an important part of reading scripture is context. Just like in my own life, we need to see what comes before this passage, what has God done in this passage, in, in the Bible before this, and where what is leading up to what we're reading. Context is really, really huge. We have to see each scripture in light of the big picture of scripture. Um, otherwise, all we can see is scary surgeries or these huge walls that are keeping us from entering the promised land, um, and we cannot see what God is capable of doing. So, in light of context, if we back way up in the beginning, you know, we had Adam and Eve in the garden. They brought sin into the world. God started over with Noah. Fast forward and we get to Abraham. Now, in Genesis 15, he gives Abraham some really big promises. And he tells him, you know, go outside and I want you to count the stars and that uh, so shall your offspring be. And then also in a very meaningful act, he makes a covenant with Abraham And so what they did back then was they took several animals and they would cut them in half and literally in the middle is this bloodbath. And both parties, when they were making covenant, would walk through this bloodbath, basically symbolizing, if I don't keep my side of the promise, may I be cut in half like this animal, may I die. And so what's interesting is when God makes this covenant with Abraham, he sort of puts Abraham to sleep and the Lord passes through twice, once as a smoking fire pot and once as a flaming torch, but he's basically telling Abraham, look, you are not gonna keep your side of the promise. You're not gonna be able to. And so I'm gonna take your place. And when you can't keep your side of the bargain, may I be cut in half in two. All of that obviously pointing to Christ and what he would do for us. So Abraham and Sarah end up getting pregnant. They have Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah. They have Jacob and Esau. 
Jacob steals his brother's birthright. He ends up marrying. He has two wives, two concubines. Um, Through them has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them, Joseph, gets sold into slavery. He goes into Egypt, basically becomes uh, a kind of a ruler of Egypt, ruling a lot of it. His family comes because there's a famine, and he ends up saving his own family from that famine. Um, Through that, though, they actually end up staying in Egypt. The next Pharaoh sort of forgets uh, the kindness towards his family, and they end up becoming slaves for the next 400 years in Egypt. Uh, God, Moses grew up there. He goes away. God calls Moses back to Egypt to rescue his people. They leave. Remember the dramatic story of them, God parting the Red Sea. They leave plundering Egypt in the process. They take all, basically all of their goods, everything, as they're leaving. Um, and then they wander the wilderness for the next 40 years. There, They worship other gods, they complain, they mess up in some really big ways, and they complain that it even would have been better for them to be back in slavery in Egypt than to be where God has them now in freedom. They preferred the comfort of their chains because there's a heavy responsibility of faithfulness that God is calling them to on the other side of the promised land. But they needed to remember what God had done for them through all of that so that they would have the faith to believe in what he was calling them to. In the wilderness, they build a tabernacle. God's presence actually comes down and dwells with them there. Moses continues to lead them, messes up himself, which ultimately costs um, himself setting his feet into the promised land. And then his mentee, Joshua, steps into leadership to lead them into the land. So that's where we are today. So I'm going to read a little bit, starting in Joshua 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, arise and go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I'm giving them to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, just as I promised to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you." I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do all that is according written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord God is with you wherever you go. So when I first read this, I think, man, God repeats himself a lot. He keeps saying, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, and I won't leave you. And those are some super encouraging words, I'm sure, especially for Joshua in light of his mentor passing. He's got all these people to lead that honestly just keep complaining and grumbling. Um, And it would be easy to stop there and say, God wants us to be strong and courageous. 
Now that's not wrong, but I think that there's a deeper meaning that we can get from this text. When God repeats himself many times, my ears perk up to pay attention. And so when the Bible repeats itself, there is a literary device called a chiasm. It's named for the Greek letter chi that looks like Rx. And it's a literary structure that they use to emphasize a point. So think of it like a sandwich. You have your bread, and then your mayo, and then your meat. And then you have mayo again and bread again. But the meat is the point of the sandwich. We call it a turkey sandwich or a ham sandwich. That's the point, is what the meat in the middle. And so if we look at this text, um, we can see a chiasm, and it's usually structured an A, B, C, C, B, A pattern. So if we look at this, it says, I will be with you. I'm paraphrasing here. I'll be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. C would be be careful to do according to the law. Now here's the meat. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. And then he goes back, C, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written. B, be strong and courageous. A, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So if we see this chiasmus, the emphasis is on that center. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. So love God's word. What is the word? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus said in the beginning, or in John it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. He was with God in the beginning. So what is that specific book of the law? Well, the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so what do those books speak of? Well, yes, like they speak of the history that God has brought his people through. And there is a lot of law in there of God telling them over and over all these different laws that they have to obey. But ultimately, those books speak of a coming Messiah that would come. In John 5:46, Jesus said, if you believed Moses, then you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So from that, we can deduct that that whole Torah really is a book, a group of books that are all pointing to the one that would come. And so if we look back at that passage, we could kind of summarize it like this. I won't leave you. Be strong and courageous. Follow the law. Meditate on the one who fulfills the law. Do all that is written. Be strong and courageous, and I am with you wherever you go. So now we can look at that text, and we can see that Christ is at the center. So even what the Lord is speaking to Joshua after the death of his mentor and leader in Moses, that Christ is still at the center of it. So it's always important to, when we're reading the word, to ask, where is Jesus in this passage? Is there something, if it's the Old Testament, is there something in here that's pointing, that is a piece of that puzzle that's pointing to a savior that's coming? And it's easy um, to read this chiasmus and think and, and miss the point that Jesus is in the center. And so a, a way to kind of overcome that is we can think, does this passage remind me of anywhere else in scripture? Is it repeated somewhere else? Do we have a New Testament explanation for what is going on here in the Old Testament? Many times we do. Many times the New Testament will quote something and reveal what uh, the author in the New Testament was actually saying. And so 
We can see a similar chiasmus in the New Testament. In Matthew, at the end, when Jesus is giving the Great Commission, Now, I really believe that what he's saying here is sort of echoing this chiasmus that God is giving Joshua. So Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and here's the meat, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." So he's sort of saying, hey, I want you to conquer the nations, not as Joshua did, but in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want you to conquer in grace and in truth and in love. And so how do we know all that he's commanded us? Well, it's in the word. We've got to know the word. We have to study the word to know that. And so when the Lord asks you to walk through something that feels really scary and you need some courage, where do you run? A great way also to see Jesus in the word is to look what's for what's called the fallen condition of man. And so I went with some ladies from here um, this summer to a teaching thing in Austin, and I learned this concept there because I, I love searching for Christ in the scriptures, but um, they, they kind of gave a formula for finding him. And so they call it uh, the fallen condition of man. Basically, look for sin um, in the word. And a sin is a great place to see Jesus shining through in that moment. He almost always shows up when this occurs. And so we can see this big picture of the Israelites are constantly grumbling, blatantly sinning, but God's still providing for them. He gives them food in the wilderness. He gives them water and even his presence. And so in that, we can see that Christ is that bread or manna. Christ is that living water that came from the rock for them. And when Moses messes up, God even provides another leader for them in Joshua. And so if Moses represents the law and all that was given before that, then Christ in Joshua in Christ represents that law fulfilled. So we can see Joshua leading through them, them through the Jordan. Um, we're going to get there in Joshua. He leads them through the Jordan in a symbolic form of baptism. We see that Jordan River split in two, just like the temple curtain would 1,400 years later. That curtain that got torn represents the law being torn in two, that we now have the ability to go to him in Christ. And Jesus fulfills that law. He makes a way for us. So if that crossing of the Jordan is symbolic of baptism, then we need to remember too that Jesus was actually baptized in that same river Jordan many years later. And just like Christ, Joshua himself begins leading the people after this symbolic form of baptism. So an author I love named Chad Bird, he says it this way, as Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River and into the promised land, so this new and better Joshua saves us from the wilderness of sin and death by transporting us across the river of baptism into the promised land of his father's kingdom. 
So we see Joshua and he's leading them to victory. He advocates for them in their defeat. He allots portions of the land to them based on their inheritance in him. We can see God and his desire for all to be saved through the story of Rahab, of an outsider believing in God's power and promises, even down to the fact that the cord that she hang out her, hung out her window was scarlet covered. I think that even that is important and the beauty in that symbolic of the blood of Christ, just like the blood over their doors in Passover was symbolic and that that blood of Christ covers us in our sin. So we have to look for Christ in each story. It is all about him. And if there's one thing I want you to remember today, it's this, look for Christ in every part of this book. He is there whispering in all of it. So we can often find him in scripture if we look and ask, is this mentioned anywhere else? And so in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea and were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all drank, ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he can stand take heed lest he fall, for no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now that passage mentions several things. So when it talks about them overthrown in the wilderness, that's referring back to Numbers 14. So it's right after Joshua and Caleb had spied out that land the first time and they come back and they're like, man, we could take it. And all the other spies are like, oh yeah, no, there's like giants there. They're really scary. And the people get super scared and they actually cry out in fear and they want to stone Joshua and Caleb. Um, God got really angry and basically says, hey, for that, you're going to wander in the wilderness for another generation. And so from every man 20 years old and older would not set his foot in the promised land because of their unbelief and their grumbling. And so all that younger generation had to grow up and they would get to enter along with Joshua and Caleb. Um, when it mentions the 23,000 numbers uh, that fell in one single day, that is referring to a plague that uh, fell on Israel when they started worshiping the God of Baal, who was um, very, very evil. So again, where do you run? When change or upheaval comes into your life, are you running to the word that is Christ? Or are you running to the world? Are you letting fear overcome you and grumbling about your situation and lacking in the trust of the one who said that he would never leave you? Have you forgotten what he's done in your own life 
or in the life of um, others in the Bible that we can read. So another aspect that stuck out to me about the story was Joshua's relationship with Moses. So if you backtrack, he was with Moses through those first five books um, in Genesis through through Deuteronomy. He was there maybe even helping him physically write it. We don't know. Uh, Moses leads well, and he takes Joshua under his wing, um, shows him God's promises that God told him. He's passing on leadership skills. Joshua was there with him at Mount Sinai. And Joshua showed great faith when he did go spy out the land with Caleb. Um, Joshua was faithful to God, whether he was in a big crowd or a group of small people. Um, We can see in their relationship, Moses rebukes Joshua in Numbers 11. So these two guys, Eldad and Medad, are prophesying about the Lord. And Joshua's like, oh, we shouldn't let them do that. And Moses rebukes him and is like, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would pour out his spirit on them. And I love that because it shows such a great picture of the heart of Moses that Um, He's teaching Joshua that the goal is not for the people to follow him, but that they would follow the Lord instead and that the Lord would be the center of their hearts. Um, Moses saw the value of taking all that he was learning from God and teaching it to Joshua. Um, As I was preparing for this, I saw such a great picture of this for us. And so... As Pastor Gary, before he passed away, several days before, he called all of the staff in to his hospital room. And basically, it was, uh, I was not there. I'm not on staff. But it was just a sweet time of blessing that he blessed our staff and prayed over them. And I think, I just love that representation of this relationship and what a great leader that we did have in Gary And so just as Moses was mentored by Jethro, um, he then in turn mentored Joshua. And Moses, he did not have it all together, as we can see in scripture. Um, But Joshua hopefully learned from that and learned to put his hope in God and not in Moses. Um, It's a great example of biblical mentorship. He learned from Moses, but his hope was in the Lord. And so If you're thinking about mentoring somebody, um, you're going to mess up. And if you're thinking, man, I do not have what it takes to mentor anyone, you're absolutely right. (laughs) You don't, just like I don't. Um, But the point is that in those moments, we can point our friends to Jesus. And even in our sin, we can point that he is the one that saved us and that when we are weak, he is strong. We've got to remember that just like these chiasmuses, that he's the meat of that sandwich. And so just in, like in this text, our sin and our inadequacies and our shortcomings all point to the one who forgives us and who can redeem it all. And so with that, what do you do when your hero dies? When somebody like Pastor Gary, who's led so faithfully and so well for so many years, who or what do you run to in that? So Luther wrote this about kind of the Moses's, Moses and Joshua's relationship. He says, The fact that Moses does not cross over the Jordan to the land of promise, but he's commanded to turn it over to another leader, is an outstanding hidden lesson to the effect that the law leads nothing to but perfection, as it is said in Hebrews 7.19. 
For the law does not give the spirit of grace, and therefore it does not lead into the kingdom of God where the true inheritance of the Lord is. Moses kills two kings on this side of Jordan. That is, the law humbles sinners, shows them they're slain, and leaves nothing alive. That is, no trust in anything, since it leads to hell and is the ministry of death. Cattle and goods, however, are safe, for they come in his booty, for the law does not kill the man bodily, but it kills the trust of his heart. When that is dead, a man surrenders whatever he is and has in the service of the law as booty, and the miserable wretch lives with all of his powers as a captive of the law. But since the law does not preach forgiveness of that sin, which it provoked through its ministry, therefore it's forced to die in the land of Moab outside of the kingdom of God." Since it's not right to teach the demand of the killing of the law among the people of freedom, but the gift of the life-giving spirit, therefore the whole law collapses here so that nothing is left of it, and man does not even know where it's buried. Joshua, however, denotes Christ because of his name and because of what he does. Although he was a servant of Moses, after his master's death, he leads the people and parcels out the land and their inheritance. Thus Christ, who was made first under the law, Galatians 4, served it for us, and when it was ended, he established another ministry, that of the gospel, by which we are led through him into the spiritual kingdom of joy and serene in God, where we live forever. So Jesus came and he brings us into an even greater promised land than we see in Joshua, one that lasts forever, one that we will actually see him face to face. So remember, in order to not fear those giants or the walls that keep you from God's promises, you have to see the big context. You have to look at this big picture. What has God done for you in your life? So if you've been in Bible study some or you've heard me teach, you might have heard bits and pieces of my testimony. And so in this, um, when I was going through this biopsy stage and honestly just a place of battling that fear, and I had to remember all that God has done for me in my life. And so in my life, um, as a child, I grew up with alcoholic parents, but he was with me. I lost my dad to a heart attack when I was 12 years old, but he was with me. I lost my mom to breast cancer when I was 16 years old, and he was with me. I've lost my own health through autoimmune problems, but he is with me. I've lost a baby through a failed adoption, and he was with me. I lost a piece of my heart in foster care, and it was worth it, but he was with me. I lost my second mom to kidney cancer after eight years, and he was with me. And I've lost a part of my second dad as he's had a massive stroke and deals with dementia today, but he was with me. So as I wrote this, I was waiting still the surgical biopsy, um, but today, after waiting those 40 days and fighting to know Jesus better, I can tell you that the spot was benign, of which I'm super grateful. Um, but knowing that cancer could be in your future after watching two of your moms die and your pastor from cancer can absolutely create fear in your life. But when my heart focuses on Jesus, I can remember that the worst possible outcome actually did come with both of my moms, but he was with me and I lived through it. But you know what? So did they. 
They lived through it because of Jesus. And so did Gary. It's easy for us to see obituaries about people and like about Gary and think, you know, from an earthly perspective, he was a pastor and he lived this great life, but then he died. But the truth is he lived through it because of Jesus. That is the hope that we have in Christ. That's the hope that Gary spoke of his entire life. God did not give you the gift of faith just to think theologically or academically about his word or himself. It's meant to be lived out, and we get to live that out when trials come. When we're in the wilderness and we come against giants and walls that seem to keep us from all that God promises. So one more time today, I'll ask myself as I ask you. When things don't go the way that you hoped or planned, and maybe that's an abnormal mammogram or the death of a pastor or whatever you're going through today, what is your response? Do you cling to the word or do you grumble like the Israelites and shake your fist at God and assume that he's brought you to this wilderness to die? Now that actually might very well be the case for trials often do bring death, but many times it's a death to ourselves and it's this very death that we can find his grace. So just like that River Jordan and the waters that represent new life in Christ are actually meant to kill you. And without Christ, they would. But because of him, we can raise up again to new life. And so I want you to cling to the word that is Christ and to look for him through all the scripture, even in Joshua, even in in, in all of his word, that he alone can save us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We are so grateful for your word, grateful that it is alive and living. We pray, God, that we would not just be hearers of the word, but that we would be doers of the word. Pray that Christ would come alive through all of these scriptures for us and through all of these teachings in these next several weeks that we can see Jesus, see him come alive and see what he has done for us, even in the story of Joshua and even in this Old Testament pray that you would um, use that to change our lives, that we would cling to you no matter what we are going through today, that we would remember that you are at the center of it all and help us remember what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Karen, for a great word. I want (laughs) to encourage you guys to please go get your kids if you have them over in childcare. (laughs) And everybody else, feel free to stay and mingle for a little while.